Here we go. This is our last talk in the series on Nehemiah. And my question, of course, has to be, who loves, who loves a happy ending? Put your hand up. Good. Uh, I remember my wife, Tanya, was reading a book by Jody Pakul. Don't know if I've got the surname right. And Tanya's read this book and she's finished it and thrown it down in disgust and she stormed out of the room. And then she comes back and she's vented briefly. It was a stunning reaction. I haven't forgotten it. Uh, which means she was totally engaged in the story. Uh, but also, uh, given the conversation that followed, she was totally eyes wide open to the ethic, this truth that the author was trying to teach through this fictional story. She was awake to it, and that's part of what made her mad. <laughs> it was great. Anyway, some endings make us mad. Uh, some endings, like when the bad guys win, how is that possible? Uh, some endings mess with your head, if you've seen the movie Inception. Uh, still messing with my head. Um, or the original Ocean's Eleven movie, I remember seeing that. And, oh, man, it's a glorious ending. It's fantastic. It's worth watching. Way better than the more recent one, Ocean's Eleven. Go for it. Uh, endings are significant. Uh, they're a final say. And good endings will propel the reader to real life, to real reactions, to real emotions and feelings and real questions. Which brings us to Nehemiah. How's it going to end? We've got the people, we've got the place, we've got the rule. Remember, Moses and the law, remember, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. God said, thou shalt have a party. So they had a party in tents. There you go. And we go, go Nehemiah, go Nehemiah, you, you good thing go. And then chapter 9, if you can see it, we saw the confession of sin. Chapter 10, they... They reaffirm their commitment to God, which was the Bible reading that you should have read. And they say, we're going to do everything you ask, right? That might sound familiar. Yes, Lord, we will do everything you ask. And it's a great sense of occasion. There's music, there's praise, there's choirs, the whole, the whole shebang. What commitments did they make in chapter 10? Can you see it? Verse 30. Let me find verse 30. They said, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. So no intermarriage with foreigners. Verse 31, when the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And on it goes. So they're going to keep the Sabbath. No intermarriage. They're going to keep the Sabbath. And verse 39 they promised to the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storerooms, that's in a temple, uh, where the articles for the sanctuary, temple, um, and for the ministering priests and gatekeepers and musicians are also to be kept. This is providing for ministry at the temple. You've got to feed your people, feed your workers. So that was the provision. Uh, fantastic. Are we all happy? No intermarriage. Keep the Sabbath. Feed uh, the ministers, 
those serving at the temple. And we should then ask, well, how do they go with all that? I'm so glad you asked. Look at chapter 13. We flick over, uh, look at verse, oh, I don't know, verse 23. Verse 23, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. <laughs> Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. There's a problem. Verse 15, uh, there's another problem. What are they doing in verse 15? In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other. They're trading on the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath. This should make us go, uh-oh. Uh, verse 10, what else have they done? I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. What? And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. They've had to leave the temple and their ministry and their work so they can just eat. Uh, they're neglected. Worse, just prior to verse 10, it's clear the reason they're neglected is because Tobiah... Remember Tobiah, the dirt bag? He's using that space in the sanctuary for his own stuff. Um, this is bad. This is really bad. And it means that the Levites and the priests and all who serve at the temple are being neglected on account of Tobiah, the dirt bag. Tobiah's presence, he's there in verse uh, 6 to 9. Have a read. Tobiah's presence is a reminder for all of us that you will always have a Tobiah around. There's always going to be a dirtbag somewhere lurking, doing their thing, undermining ministry, um, working against, being oppositional and subversive. And as a pastor, this is a sobering reality check. But this doesn't apply to pastors, does it? All Christians, we need to know this and we need to remember this. Um, so the ending's not looking real flash, is it? I mean, but they made a confession. They made a commitment, but they keep messing up. I grew up with a proverb. Um, when I was a young bloke, I saw this and it stayed with me. If only I could live it out. Proverbs 26, 11. It's a bit of a favorite. That doesn't mean you're going to like it, but here it is. Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Isn't that a gross? Oh, it's so vivid and you can smell it and see it. And, oh. Let me say it again. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his volley, folly. Uh, vomit. I mean, that's just a picture that's uh, sickening and nauseating. And so visual, it's so visual seeing people. Um, what are we to liken it to? We're to liken it to people who keep repeating their mistakes over and over and over again without ever learning. Uh, so you can't look, I can't look anymore. 
you know, think about the friend that goes from toxic relationship to toxic relationship. And you're like, oh, I can't look anymore. It's just, mm. or, or, or the bad driver, or, or the bad eating habits, or, or the bad conversations. No, I can't listen to this anymore. Or bad social media posts that people just keep making the same mistake over and over again. But here in the Old Testament, the mistake is sin. The mistake is people's rejection of God. Uh, that's re rejecting God over and over again without ever learning. They prefer folly over wisdom, which is like choosing dog vomit over mum's lamb roast. I mean, seriously, why would you? That's the picture. This is the Old Testament. This is Nehemiah. Such is the folly of sin. History keeps repeating itself. Now, do you reckon Nehemiah is frustrated? Oh, come with me. He is so frustrated. Look at verse I don't know, let's try verse 11. He rebukes the officials. He asks them, why is the house of God neglected? Um, so he gets his cranky pants on. Uh, verse 17 uh, goes next level. I, I rebuke the nobles of Judah. I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. So he, he gets into them. Verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. So he's closing gates to the city. This is chapter 13, by the way. Uh, verse 21, he threatens to lay hands on people and arrest people. Uh, that's something special. Uh, and at this point we go, ah, Nehemiah, the model of leadership, right? <laughs> and I've said this before. If Nehemiah is just a handbook on leadership, well, which one of these is a dot point in the manual? Do you want your pastor to have people arrested or jostled like this? or I mean, I mean, do you want your pastor to be more like him at this point as he lays hands on people? and I mean, look at verse 23. This is great. Make sure it come with me. Verse 23. Uh, I read this. Moreover, in the days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Verse 25, I rebuked them. I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men. I pulled out their hair. <laughs> I made them take an oath. And on it goes. Seriously? No, Nehemiah is not tearing out his own hair. That would be in the manual, wouldn't it? As a pastor, you're going to tear out your own hair. No, he's tearing out other people's hair. Again, I asked, do you want any pastor to model this? I'm thinking the answer is no. But don't worry, I mean, some of you blokes don't have much hair anyway, so it would be a bit of a challenge. Some of you don't have much, some of you don't have any. Does anyone here want to say that this is biblical leadership? Or are we discerning enough to go, it's a description of what actually happened, not a command. Right? We know the difference, don't we? We know when the Lord says, keep the Sabbath, we know that's a command. But surely we know that hair pulling is not. <laughs> hair pulling 
parishioners coming to a, a clergy retreat near you. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Okay, no, no. Now, I need to talk, dealt with leadership. Now we need to talk about intermarriage because that's the thing that screams at us from this text. Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, the Sabbath today and uh, providing for ministry. Uh, that's well covered in other places. Intermarriage, though, might be something that um, makes us scratch and itch, especially if you know the story of Ruth the Moabitess who married Boaz. She was a foreigner. So we come to Nehemiah and go, hey, what's the deal here? Surely. But we need to acknowledge that Ruth's story does not negate the lesson of Solomon. Nehemiah explains it. You pick it up at the end of verse 25, the back end of it. He says, You're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? You see it? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He, he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear how now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? It's a problem. It's a problem. Now, we might hear that and go, yeah, that was a problem for... I mean, Solomon had a, like a, a billion wives. One is enough, surely. Uh, but see the problem. Nehemiah paints that as a picture. It, it's a, a floodgate of sin. True for Solomon, who was had the reputation of being so wise, well, how can it not then apply to us? And you go, well, does it? Because this is Old Testament, Adam. Oh, yeah, it is. But flick with me, come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. The question is, does this apply to the New Testament? Let me begin reading. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Think holified. Uh, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That's anything outside the covenant of marriage. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans. You seriously don't need me to explain that, do you? I'm, I'm not going to. You know what passionate lust is. Uh, pagans who do not know God, verse 6, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Massive assumption there that the people concerned are Christians, that they're brothers and sisters. This, do you see that? The person we're in a relationship with is going to be a Christian. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 shouts very loudly, God wants our relationships to be holy. True then, in the days of Nehemiah, true today. They're going to be holy. 
Notice again the assumption that the person that you're in a relationship with is a brother or sister in Christ. It's a given. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. This is a passage well traveled. It goes on to say, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. You, you, you've guessed what it is, I reckon some of you. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Oh, there it is. And it goes on, and then the Apostle Paul asks, What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Do not be yoked. Do you know what a yoke is? My kids would launch with egg jokes at the moment. I'm so over them. Huh. Uh, do you know what a yoke is? It's a wooden bar. It joins two bollocks together, two, two beasts, and, um, and further joins them to the load that they carry. And so to be unequally yoked means that one bullock is stronger than the other, is taller than the other, or bigger than the other. And why does this matter? Because the bullock, <laughs> the bullock team needs to work together. They must be compatible. If the capabilities are different, one is going to work harder and faster than the other, which means that they're going to go around in circles. They're going to do some serious circle work and actually make no progress at all. They're not going to go forward. It's a bit like if you had a billy cart and put big wheels on the left side of the billy cart and then little wheels on the right side of the billy cart. And what do you think's going to happen? Donuts. You're just going to make donuts. Lots of serious circle work, but you're not going to go forward and travel. When oxen are unequally yoked, when bullocks are unequally yoked, they cannot perform the task that's set before them. Instead of working together, they are at odds with each other. That's the point. So it is with all kinds of partnerships, business partnerships and marriage, if this is what we're talking about. It's because a Christian brings a particular worldview to a partnership, business or marriage, and the unbeliever brings theirs, and it's not the same. They're at odds. I mean, you love Jesus above all else, and the other person doesn't love Jesus above all else. They might not even know Jesus, uh, let alone love him. And, and so Paul is saying there's... A problem with compatibility. They don't, it's not going to work. There's going to be a rub. Now, here's a side note. If you're already established in your commitment to another person, uh, I believe 1 Corinthians 7 says you don't change that. Okay? You don't change that. Very simply. You stay, stay where you are. Don't change that. But those who are or will one day think about who they spend the rest of their life with, the encouragement is to take care. It might feel good at the time. It might feel right. But the counsel of Scripture says you're in danger of being at cross purposes with your God. Just ask Solomon. Just ask Israel. Just ask Nehemiah. Nehemiah reminds us yeah, you can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Even Herod did that for crying out loud. 
come on. You can even call back people and they, and they returned. You can even do the Spiro thing and read the scriptures and confess and commit and grieve. Nehemiah's mob did all that outward stuff. But the human heart is something else altogether. See, this is why intermarriage back then was a problem because it's a battle for the human heart. And this is why believers and unbelievers coming together isn't so great because it's a contest, a battlefield for the human heart. And God is saying, no, you've got to love me above all else. No competition. I mean, we find that in Deuteronomy 6 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 13 of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, how many times is that? Five or six times. God calls his people to love him with all their heart, all their strength, all their soul and all their mind. And when you think about Ruth, yeah, that's something she did, isn't it? In the Gospels, Jesus repeats the command in Luke 10, Mark 12. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul and mind. And love your neighbor. And so it's little wonder as we reflect on that law of love to love God, that law that underpins everything else, that we're to love him above all else. It's little wonder that us Anglicans... What are we praying? We're praying that, Lord, write your law in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That's our prayer. It comes out of, actually, it comes out of Hebrews 10. We didn't think of it. It's there in the Bible. Hebrews 10, we'll talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, that one sacrifice once and for all that takes away sin, that sin must be cleansed, sin must be forgiven, it's got to be dealt with such that God now enters our hearts by the Holy Spirit and he gives us life. He gives us a new heart that loves him, that loves the Son, that loves the Holy Spirit. A heart that beats for him. That's what God does. Such that when you get to verse 22 of chapter 10 in Hebrews, I don't know if you've got it open now, it's worth a look. But it tells us that on account of all that Jesus has done, we can draw near to God with a sincere what? A sincere heart. With the full assurance that faith brings, we can have our hearts sprinkled clean and cleansed from a guilty conscience. We have our bodies washed with pure water. So then we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. I'm not faithful. Israel aren't, but God is in Jesus Christ. And so we consider how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds because we're not safe for nothing. And we don't give up meeting together. That's verse 25. Don't you give up meeting together with other Christians as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord's return approaching. Here's my question. This is where we're going to land and finish. Do you reckon Christians are capable of change? It's a fair question. Israel struggled. Why would we be any different? But I want to say to you, Nehemiah shows us that the promise is that in Jesus we are. Jesus makes all the difference in the world. He is the key difference. Romans 6 tells us that on account of Jesus, we're to count ourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ. 
And you go, but Adam, I, I still stuff up from time to time. And yeah, yeah, sure, sin might be present, but it is not president. That's worth writing down. Sin might be present, but it is not president in your life. It doesn't rule you. And death is not the hopeless end. No, we are alive in Christ. We are people who know God's love and forgiveness, and it brings us joy and hope and life everlasting. That's how it's supposed to roll. So how do you see yourself? How's it all going to end for you? Do you read the book of Nehemiah and go, Oh, this is me, wretched sinner I am. Or do you read Nehemiah now and you go, Oh, God has saved me from this. Thank you, Jesus. Because Christ dwells in our heart by faith through the Holy Spirit. Do you believe, the, the, do you believe Jesus has the power to bring lasting change to people's lives? If you do, pray to that end. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to bring lasting change to your life? If you do, pray to that end. Hebrews 12 says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run the race with perseverance that's marked out before us. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. See, it's all about him. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him is the invitation who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. <laughs> There's the encouragement. That's a pretty good ending, isn't it? that you will not lose heart. But my prayer is that many watching today would also know in Jesus we have a beautiful new beginning. And maybe this is true for some of us today. In Jesus, as I think about the end, I can know that in him I can have a beautiful new beginning. Amen.